Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we open your Word, and we confess that it is the Word of life, that from it we learn the truth. We learn the eternal truth about who you are, we learn the truth about your Son, and we learn the truth about ourselves and how we might be reconciled to you. But Father, as we approach this word, we confess our weakness, that we spiritually have nothing in our own strength. I am a weak preacher, and this church is weak listeners in our own strength. So we ask that your spirit would please empower us for me to speak your word and for this church to listen. And we recognize that it will not be us, but it will be Christ in us to make that word effective. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, whenever we begin something new, such as a hobby or a new skill, new line of work, our first product is never the best. Uh, all of you can think back maybe to when you first learned to ride a bike. Uh, the first time you sat down in that seat and tried to move those pedals, it was not your best uh, Lance Armstrong impression. You uh, probably fell down, got some scraped knees, and you had to get back up again and it took a while before you had a a performance of bike riding that you were happy with and were willing to show off to, to somebody else. But the same is true for anything else. I mean, maybe you're taking up a, a new kind of cooking, a new recipe. Uh, the first round may not be your best showing. Or if you've ever played golf, your first swing of trying to hit that little white object sitting on the ground, again, may not have been your best and cleanest hit. In all these things that we seek to learn and we're seeking to do, there's always trial and error. And when it comes to our first product or our first performance, it's never our best. It's human to begin slow and to get better as we go. Practice makes perfect. And yet today, we're going to see Jesus' first sermon. This isn't just his first one that he performed publicly. This is, best we could tell, his first ever time he preached before any sort of audience. And for all those who have preached for some time, uh, we will admit that listening to or reading our first sermon is a miserable experience because our first sermon is never our best. We know how horrible it was now in hindsight. But Jesus is different. Jesus' first sermon here is not only great, but it's paradigmatic. It's a, it's a model for the rest of his ministry. So that we can even look back now, thousands of years later, and not cringe at his first sermon, but to realize how amazing it was. From this sermon, Luke wants us to see and to get a sampling of what we can expect from Jesus 
and his ministry. But we need to remember who this Jesus is. We know, yeah, Jesus preaches great sermons. I mean, that's easy to admit. But again, remember the, the flow of the gospel up to this point. Jesus was simply a craftsman or a builder or a carpenter in the small village of Nazareth in the first century, a village of maybe 400 or 500 people. He took up the trade of his father and did that to support the family. He, like some of his peers, may have gone off to rabbinical school down in Jerusalem and sat under the rabbis and learned the law and learned to expound and teach the law, but Jesus didn't do that. He didn't go to seminary, as we would say today. But that's not to say that he wasn't religious. He was probably the most interested layperson that ever existed. Not in the trade of the rabbis, and yet knowing as much as the rabbis. He was very tied into the religious community there, probably asking questions of the rabbis and those in the synagogue, reading from the scrolls, discussing the law with others in small groups. And so he was a very pious, religious Jewish craftsman. And yet it's from this Jewish craftsman that emerges the greatest preacher that this world has ever seen. And we get to see that preacher in action in Luke chapter 4. So I invite you, if you aren't there already, to open your personal copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, where we are going to see this first sermon of Jesus. We're going to read this morning verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. So follow along as I read. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three and six 
three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things of the town and brought him to the brow built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. In this text, we're going to look at Jesus' preaching. We're going to see eight characteristics of Jesus' preaching as outlined in this text. This preaching of Jesus is preaching that we too need to listen to, need to trust in, and need to obey. And so we need to pay attention to the preaching of the Jesus of Jesus of Nazareth. The first characteristic that we see in this text is that he preached in the Spirit. Verses 14 and 15. He preached in the Spirit. Luke here transitions in verse 14, saying, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Here he has just finished the temptations of Jesus in verses 1 through 13. And now Luke records that he's going back to Galilee. Returning there because that's where he grew up. Returning there because that's where he came from. Now, Luke, along with the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark, seem to indicate that this returning to Galilee happened fairly soon after his temptations. But one of the tasks that we have when we study the Gospels is to put all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together and try to understand the whole scope, the whole story of Jesus' life, particularly some sort of a timeline to try to understand what took place before this, before this, before this. And understand how all of them mesh together. It's called harmonizing the Gospels. Now each author chose chose his narrative, chose his material for specific purposes. And we need to look at that in each book. But as we compare the Gospels, we realize that there's actually about a one-year gap between verses 13 and 14 here in Luke. About a one-year gap. That first year is recounted in John chapters 1 through 4. John chapters 1 through 4. Those chapters include events such as Jesus beginning to call his disciples. John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His first miracle of turning the water into wine at Cana. His first Passover in his ministry where he goes to Jerusalem, he overturns the the tables in the temple for the first time, which he'll do again in the final week of his life as well. Or his conversation with Nicodemus about the need for sinners to be born again, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well and the conversion of that town. All these events that took place in John chapters 1 through 4 seem to to fit in after his temptation, and yet before he arrives for his, what scholars call his great Galilean ministry, which begins here in verse 14. These events cause him to transverse the country from the north to south and to the north again. But now after those events are finished, Luke picks up the narrative for his purposes, telling us that Jesus returned to Galilee. And he did this to begin a preaching tour. Notice 
that here in verses 14 and 15, Luke doesn't mention any miracles. He particularly highlights the teaching. He says that Jesus has returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report went out. In verse 15, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, he's going to mention the miracles of Jesus coming up, but here he begins by highlighting the teaching or preaching of Jesus. And he says that he did this in the power of the Spirit. Now, if you've been with us, you know that the Spirit has had a, had a front and center role in the book of Luke, particularly in the life of Jesus as well. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 35. He was anointed and filled by the Spirit at His baptism. We see in chapter 3, verse 22, as well as chapter 4, verse 1. And was empowered and led by the Spirit into the wilderness for that showdown with the devil. And here, Luke makes the point emphatically one more time. Jesus is doing His ministry, is moving about His life in the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to miss it. He, me he mentions the Spirit too much. For us, to, for us to overlook the fact. Jesus did the amazing things that he did because he was empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, particularly, again, as we said, it was his teaching that was empowered. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, if you've been reading your Bible for some length of time, synagogues are nothing new. You go, oh yeah, the synagogue. But if you had been reading the Bible for the first time and you read through the Old Testament and you turn the page, go into the New, and you start seeing about synagogues, you'd have to ask yourself, what are these things? Because the Old Testament doesn't talk about synagogues. There's no teaching in the law about setting up synagogues. And yet we come to the New Testament, the Gospels, and the synagogue is everywhere, and even going into the book of Acts. So we have to ask, where did synagogues come from? And why are they here a part of Jewish life? Best we can tell, they developed during the Babylonian exile. As the story arc of the Old Testament goes, that Israel was in the land, they were supposed to follow and obey the law, and yet they failed to do so. And so God punished them in accordance with the, the curses of the law, and he expelled them out of the land, and they were sent into exile. They, the northern tribes by Assyria, the southern tribes by Babylon. And while they're in exile... They need a way to continue to, uh, to continue to keep Judaism alive, to keep the study of the law, the memorization, the, 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 the knowledge of the Torah as a religious community in a foreign place. They don't have access to the temple anymore. They can't go perform uh, rituals and, and ceremonies in Jerusalem. How are they going to pass on Judaism to their children? How are they going to keep this religion alive? And so it seems that it probably started as small groups in these locales, meeting together, talking, and, and then there begins to be some leadership, and, and these synagogues developed, a place for teaching of the Word of God and for prayer. And Jesus now, as He begins His ministry, uses the synagogue system as a basis for His evangelistic ministry. He goes first to these synagogues. Verse 15 is saying that He's hopping and skipping around to synagogue to synagogue, teaching there. Now we know from the rest of the Gospels that he's going to teach outdoors and in other locales as well, but here at the beginning he begins in the synagogues. And in fact, the early church did exactly the same thing. When the first missionaries in Acts 13 are sent out, Paul and Barnabas, they go to the synagogues. 
because it's there that the Word of God is read. It's there that the Word of God is revered. And so, if you're going to be announcing that a man named Jesus has come and he's fulfilled that Word that you're all reading, the synagogue seems to be the natural place to go. So, we see that Jesus was the Spirit-filled preacher. And a Spirit-filled preacher that you and I need to listen to as well. God the Father sent His Son, empowered Him by His Spirit. And therefore, the message Jesus preached came about because of the combined forces of the triune God. And we need to take heed. So first, He preached in the Spirit. Second characteristic is He preached to great fame. He preached to great fame. We see this also in verses 14 and 15. It says that a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country. And that teaching in the synagogues, he was being glorified by all. This news spread quickly. This man is going from synagogue to synagogue. He's preaching this message, and you all need to hear this. He taught with authority. He preached to people's hearts. He convicted sinners. He instructed minds. He called them to action in such a way that was not heard anywhere else in Israel. There was something different going on. And the result was near universal acclaim. He's being glorified by all, Luke says. This word of glorification, this is the only place Luke uses it of Jesus, that he was being glorified. Speaking of of the great approval that he was receiving. Now the word report here, it says a report went about him went through all the surrounding country. The Greek word is fame, from which we get our English word fame. And so you, you can get this sense of this report being spread, this, this fame, this news going throughout the surrounding country of Galilee as he began to, people began to hear about Jesus. The news spread quickly. People told their family and friends. They talked about it in the fields as they worked. They, the caravans of traders would move and, and bring in trading supplies, and, and they brought the news as well. It was the hottest news of the day. And with this is then a background summary. Jesus' acclaim, his, his, his approval, and his teaching in synagogues Luke then provides a detailed account of what that preaching looked like. An example of his preaching ministry in verses 16 through 30. So we've seen so far that Jesus preached in the, in, in the Spirit. He preached to great fame. The third characteristic we see in this text is that he preached the Scriptures. He preached the Scriptures. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. He says, that, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now Nazareth, his hometown, his stomping grounds, no doubt probably had a shop there in town that he did most of his work. His family was still there in town. But coming to Nazareth, it seems that this wasn't his first stop. We already read in verses 14 and 15 how he was teaching in their synagogues. He was, he was already traveling around. And verse 23 indicates that he'd already done some ministry in Capernaum that was down by the Sea of Galilee. But here he arrives at Nazareth. He's been away for some time. 
And now he returns, not to pick up his trade again, but to, to deliver a message. Luke records that it was his custom and his adult life here to, to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. No doubt continuing a pattern he had while growing up in that town. Now synagogues were ruled by a group of elders, and there was a, a man who was, uh, who was the chief among them who was called the ruler of the synagogue, as Luke 13 verse 14 identifies. His job was to conduct the order of service and to approve the teachers. And there was also a custodian or an attendant uh, in the synagogue who took care of the scrolls, and, and we're going to uh, see that person mentioned even in our text here. Now, when the synagogues met on the Sabbath day, there was somewhat of a recognized order of service that developed. First, there was the recitation of the Shema, the Lord our God is one, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then there would be a response of amen by the congregation, to which then there would be a reading of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses. It was read in Hebrew, often then translated into Aramaic, which was the language spoken in the day. Following the, the reading of the law, or the Pentateuch, would be a reading from the prophets, followed by a sermon or a word of exhortation. And finally, there would be a benediction pronounced by a priest or a closing prayer if there was no priest. And so, during a service, there would be those who would be reading, reading the Word of God and those who would be then giving a word of exhortation or preaching. And it seems from this text, as well as from Acts chapter 13, verse 15, that when there was a visiting teacher who came into the synagogue, they would seem to give them the floor and enable them to preach or to teach, either to read the Scriptures or to give a message or do both. Now, we don't know if Jesus came here and approached the chief of the synagogue and arranged for this, this opportunity ahead of time, said, hey, you know what, I'm here, I'd like to be able to read the Word, could you set this up for me? Uh, or if he just showed up and there was this general recognition that this man who's been preaching all around has suddenly arrived in our midst, let's give him the floor and give him this opportunity. And we also don't know if he chose the Isaiah scroll. Some would like to say that there was a regular scheduled readings and that did develop later on in Judaism. We don't know if that's the case here. If it was just happened to be the reading day of Isaiah and it happened to work with Jesus or whether Jesus... Uh, found the passage himself. I tend to think that he deliberately chose the passage because it says in verse 17 that he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He knew where he wanted to go. Now, each book of the Old Testament was on a scroll. So you can imagine if a synagogue had the whole Old Testament, they had a lot of scrolls, and the attendant the custodian was the person who took care of those scrolls and would pull it off the shelf and bring it to the person reading it and then pack it up, put it away. And so Isaiah would be on its own scroll and be brought to Jesus. He opens it. And we have to remember that there were no chapters or verses at this point. Chapters and verses as we have in our Bibles came many centuries later uh, to be able to find verses easily in the Bible. But for them, if they wanted to find a particular verse... Uh, they had to know the book. They had to know the landscape and know whether the, what they're looking for comes later or before. Or, 
and had to know those scrolls well. And Jesus finds exactly where he wants to read. Particularly, he finds Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads this. Look at it in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now these verses are found in the latter part of the book of Isaiah. And they describe the Messiah's anointing and his commission to bring blessing to the nation of Israel. The Messiah, the one anointed by the Spirit here, will cause Israel to rise to a place of prominence among the nations. Under his leadership, she will finally fulfill her purpose as a nation and kingdom of priests. The Messiah would establish the kingdom. And so Jesus reads these verses. But notably, he stops in the middle of verse, what is our verse 2 in Isaiah 61. Listen to what Isaiah 61 verse 2 says in its entirety. It reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So Jesus reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and stops right there. He doesn't read the following line, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. The point being that his message here focuses on salvation and liberation, not upon judgment and condemnation. But the point I want you to see here before we look at the interpretation of what Jesus meant by reading these is just to highlight the fact that, that Jesus was a man who was immersed in the Word of God. He was a Psalm 1 man. He, his delight was in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditated day and night. He knew the Word of God backward and forward. He was also the perfect king of Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, God had instructed that the king of Israel was to read the word of there, to write the law, and then they were to read the law so that they would follow in the, in the precepts of the law. Jesus perfectly read, meditated upon, and knew the law. He was fit to be the perfect king of Israel. And so, Jesus, knowing the word of God, when he went out to preach, he was drawing Israel back to the Word, pointing them to the Scriptures that they knew so well. He did not disregard the written Word. He clarified, he expounded upon it. I mean, think of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. He was not bypassing Scripture. He was clarifying it. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He affirmed the Word of God throughout his entire ministry. He pointed back to the great stories of the Old Testament and didn't say, those are fantasy, those were just made-up stories to make our nation feel good about our history. He says, no, these people actually lived, these people actually took place. God spoke to Adam, Adam was a real person. He affirmed the Old Testament, and he does that here. And so we can see that the third characteristic of Jesus' ministry was that he preached the Scriptures. But the fourth 
feature or characteristic of his ministry is that his preaching called for faith in himself. His preaching called for faith in himself. When we preach today, we call for faith in God. Jesus arrived on the scene and called for a trust and a faith in himself. And we see this in where Jesus goes with this passage. He doesn't just read it and leave it there. Look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, after reading the passage, Jesus sits down. We think, when I sit down after I'm done preaching, I'm done. I'm done preaching, I'm done. The task is done. But here, the sitting down was the beginning, was a posture of teaching. They would stand to read, and they would sit down to teach. And so Jesus, as he sits down, they are all fixed on him because they recognize he's about to teach. Imagine the room being quiet, pin drop, all the eyes are fixed upon him, the text says. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. He says, today, not yesterday, not someday in the future, but today, right now, this moment, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. By saying this, Jesus was saying, I am the one that that passage is speaking about. I am the one who is saying those words that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am the one anointed by God to preach and to proclaim this gospel message. There was no more waiting. The Messiah was in their midst today. And with that, the Messianic age had begun. But what was Jesus saying his ministry consisted of? In other words, how do these verses apply that he quotes from Isaiah 61? How do these verses apply to Jesus' ministry? What was he saying that he had come to do? Well, we can see first and foremost that it involves proclamation, preaching. He says that he, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a proclamation ministry that Jesus had to proclaim good news. The, the, to proclaim good news is one verb in the Greek and it, to, to evangelize essentially, to evangelize the poor, to proclaim good news. He was on an evangelistic preaching tour. His message, people, who's identified here in several different ways. To the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. This category, I believe along uh, all these different categories in this passage, refer to those who are spiritually needy. Those who are spiritually needy. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are captive to sin. Those who are blinded in the darkness of sin. He came to those who sat in darkness to shine a great light. He claimed that he was light of the world. He came to those who were lost. 
And we, we simply need to look at these verses and compare them with the rest of Jesus' ministry that we see throughout the Gospels to try to understand what he meant. Because he perfectly fulfilled what God has sent him to do. So in other words, what we read in the rest of the Gospels should outline or show what these verses intended. And we have to ask ourselves, did he just preach to those who were economically disadvantaged, to the economically poor? Did he go into all the prisons and preach to those who were imprisoned in the jails at that time and, and call them out of the prisons? No. He didn't seek to eradicate poverty, break all captives out of prison, to free all the slaves, or even to cause Israel to be free from the oppressor of Rome. No, he, he did come to give spiritual sight to the spiritual blind. He came to give faith to the unbelieving. He came to be light of the world and to set people free from the who were in bondage to sin and to Satan. And we see this also in verse 19, where it talks about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to uh, Leviticus 25, which speaks of the year of Jubilee, which was this time after 49 years, seven sevens, in which uh, their people were enslaved or paying off debts and different land was, was, uh, was transferred. All of that was to be put right in the year of Jubilee. The land was to return to the original tribal allotment, the different clans and families, and those who were enslaved and paying off debts were to be set free. And so Jesus here, uh, quoting the Old Testament, is saying that in the ministry of Jesus, this is the year of Jubilee. This is this time of, of setting people free. This time brought, out by the Messiah, brought about by the Messiah, an ultimate Jubilee in which everything would be set right, everything would be at peace and rest. Now, we, we read it this way, and it's important to note that many have, over the years, have turned to this passage as an explanation of Jesus' ministry that sounds quite different. They look at these verses, and they say that the purpose of Jesus' ministry was societal revolution, as he liberated all of the oppressed groups, and therefore, they say, the church, following in the footsteps of Jesus, should be about liberating all those who are oppressed and eradicating poverty. And if, if I have a few points in response to this. The first is that there's two problems with this interpretation. First is that they misinterpret the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Again, they're not reading through the whole Gospels to see what did Jesus actually do. You can't take these verses and just take them and say, oh, Jesus came to do this and therefore we should do this, and you ignore all that Christ did. And secondly, they misapply them, these verses to the church. As we said, Jesus didn't go on a mission of simply physical liberation in his ministry on this earth. And therefore, these verses can't be interpreted this way. We also know from the scriptures that, that Jesus will do that when he comes again. There will be a time when he will set everything right, when there will be true justice in the land. And we look forward to that ultimate time of rest and jubilee when he will bring about true justice. He will right every wrong. 
But we also know that the marching orders of the church are clear. We are here, Jesus says, to make disciples of all the nations. And we do that through the preaching of the, of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. That is what our marching orders are. Now, that's not to say that Christians are not compassionate or don't take up the cause of those who are in troubling situations here and now. Yes, we have big hearts. We have hearts of compassion. And we should love our neighbors as ourselves, as God calls each of us to do, depending on the proximity of those who are around us who need our help. But we see that Jesus' mission was primarily a spiritual one. And that the mission that he gave the church was one to preach the gospel and to make disciples. So Jesus came to those who were spiritually needy. But in reading this passage and making the declaration that today this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing, he wasn't just making a declaration. He was making an invitation. He was calling the people of Nazareth to place their faith in him. To say, guys, I am the Messiah. Trust in me. Believe in me. Believe that these scriptures speak of me. He was the spirit-anointed Messiah. He was telling them, I am the one who will set you free. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the one who will release you from the bondage of sin. But they didn't take him up on that invitation. And the response that they should have had is one of faith and dependence, but they didn't. And that leads us to the next characteristic of Jesus' preaching. The fifth characteristic is his preaching was fascin- his preaching fascinated the crowds. His preaching fascinated the crowds. It says, verse 22, that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They said, but it's important to note that marveling is not the same thing as believing. Ooing and awing over Jesus' teaching and maybe over his ministry or over his, his miracles is not the same thing as placing their faith in him. Just because they were fascinated doesn't mean that they committed themselves to Jesus. And they were talking about him because they heard what says uh, uh, gracious words, modeled the gracious words that were coming out of him, literally the words of grace. I don't think they were just saying Jesus was saying nice things. I think they recognized that Jesus was saying gracious words, uh, words that were speaking about God's grace. Because Jesus had said that he was there to proclaim good news. He was there to provide liberation and salvation for the spiritually weak. And these were actions of God that were unmerited by people and therefore an extension of his grace. This ministry Jesus had was meant to be a gracious ministry to those who needed it. They then ask, is, this, is not this Joseph's son? And this could be a point of skepticism, you know, a, a genuine, who does he think he is anyway? But the question could also re- just simply re- reflect pure amazement. Wow, this is Joseph's son. This is the guy, this is the guy I hired to go build my house over here or to, to fix this or build that. And look at him. He's preaching amazing things. So whether their, their, their attitude here is hostile or not, or there's a tinge of hostility, we know it's going to turn hostile in a few verses. 
But the point here is that Jesus was fascinated, or the crowds were fascinated by Jesus' teaching. But upon seeing their simple fascination, seeing their unbelief, seeing the fact that they weren't really ready to accept him and to believe in him, Jesus responds. And that leads us to the sixth characteristic of Jesus' preaching, is that his preaching rebuked unbelief. His preaching rebuked unbelief. And we see this in verses 23 through 27. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He responds by anticipating their desire to see miracles performed in their midst. This proverb, uh, physician, heal yourself, is their way of demanding this, this native uh, Nazarite to, to bring his signs and wonders show to his hometown. In essence, they're saying, if you could do those things in Capernaum, then certainly you need to do them here. Come on, show us some love. You were, you were from here. You're not just going to pass us by. You're going to actually do some of those things we heard you did down there in Capernaum. Now, we don't know exactly what signs and wonders he did in Capernaum. Verses 14 and 15 say that he did some ministry before he came here to Nazareth. And we're going to see some ministry in Capernaum after this passage. But clearly they had heard about it. And Jesus calls them out for a demand for a sign. He says, verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Truly, in the Greek, amen, saying, up. Truly, I say this in his hometown. It was hard for the people who grew up next to Jesus, who went to the same school, who came to the same synagogue, to suddenly see him as the spirit-anointed Messiah, sent by God, and they choose to reject him. But Jesus has still yet a sharper rebuke. He goes on. And here he turns once again to the Old Testament scriptures to support his point. He recounts two stories from the Old Testament. First is about Elijah. Elijah, who after being rejected by the people of Israel, he is sent to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon, recounted for us in 1 Kings chapter 17. Jesus says that even though there were many widows in the land of Israel, Elijah was sent to this one widow who was a Gentile. A Gentile woman at that. Jesus uses a second example to the same effect. There were many lepers in Israel. But Elisha the prophet wasn't sent to deal with those lepers, but instead to heal a Gentile, Naaman the Syrian. And the point is the same for both of these stories. Jesus is calling out Nazareth for joining with ancient Israel in their unbelief. In other words, God's prophet went to the Gentiles because of the unbelief of Israel. And they, Nazareth on this day, along with ancient Israel of that former day, were more faithless than these two Gentiles. They were more faithless than these two Gentiles in these stories. Ouch. Ouch. Israel 
God's chosen people. They were the Jews. They had the law. And yet, they have less faith than Naaman the Syrian and the widow of Zarephath. Jesus makes it clear that God's going to choose what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. He's not on command for the people to do miracles whenever they want them for a show. He may have great miracles planned for Capernaum, but not for Nazareth. And their their response only supports his point. He's calling them out on their unbelief and saying they're more faithless than those Gentiles, and they show that to be true. And that leads us to the seventh characteristic of Jesus' preaching we see in this text. His preaching incited anger. His preaching incited anger. Verses 28 and 29. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Their blood was boiling at this point. For Jesus to say such things, not just about any Jews, but about his own friends, about the people that he he grew up alongside, he should show them extra deference, not extra rebuke. These people who had been friends of Mary and Joseph and Jesus were now enraged. They were filled with wrath. They would have none of this man's teaching. And their anger formed into a mob. They drive Jesus out of the synagogue, out of the town, into the brow of a hill. Nazareth was perched up in the hills overlooking the Jezreel Valley in the northern part of Israel. And although we don't know exactly what hill Jesus was push, pushed or uh, they threatened to push him over, uh, there's many there that fit the bill. There are many good candidates that, around Nazareth. And the text says they had the intent to kill Jesus. And this is remarkable. This is remarkable. Jesus, uh, uh, somehow, they, they, they interpreted this as essentially blasphemy and saying that he had, he, had, uh, he had committed this great sin, spoken against God, and so they were going to put him to death. Now, maybe they were hoping to kill him just by pushing him off, or I think rather they were, they were looking to push him off and then to pile stones on after him. Stoning was the Jewish way of capital punishment. And it was often talked about by the rabbis that they would be pushed over some ledge in order to fall and then to be finished off with stones. As we know, this won't be the last time that Jesus' teaching will cause the people to rise up in anger with an intent to kill him. In fact, this is a foreshadowing of how his life and ministry will end. But not to be outdone by the mob, we see here the final characteristic of Jesus' preaching. Lastly, his preaching operated according to God's plan. His preaching operated according to God's plan. Jesus was led by the Spirit, loved by the Father. Only that which God wanted would happen to him. And so, at this stage in the game, it was not God's will for Jesus to die. And so verse 30 says, But passing through their midst, he went away. There would be a time in the future in which he would die at the hands of his own countrymen. But this is not that time. It seems like he miraculously escapes. 
The mob is out of control, but Jesus is calm and collected. He, entrusting himself to his Father, passes right through their midst. So what's the point of all this for us today? Why do we need to look at Jesus' preaching? John 1, verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We see that illustrated in our text here today. It's tragic. His neighbors wanted nothing to do with him. They thought it was better to have him buried under a pile of stones than to believe and accept his message. But after he hangs on a cross, not outside Nazareth, but outside Jerusalem, and then rises from the dead three days later, he is able to offer life and forgiveness to all who believe in him. And that is true for us today. After John saying that he came to his own and his, his own people did not receive him, he then says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that is an opportunity that is open to each one of us today. For us to believe in the name of Jesus. To not follow in the example of, of the people of Nazareth, but instead to put our faith in this Messiah. See him as the Spirit-anointed Son of God. And so I close this morning by asking, have you received Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? Not just be fascinated by him. Not just marveling at his teaching or his miracles but truly trusting? Is your, mind, is your mind convinced that He is God in human flesh, the only Savior? Is your heart trusting in Him totally to save you? And is your will committed to obey Him in whatever He says? For all who believe in Jesus the Messiah, the passage in Isaiah 61 tells us, that he will set us free from our bondage of sin. He will open our eyes to see the truth. And he has good news to us who are spiritually needy. There are only two options. Either we reject Jesus' claims or we receive them. Either we join the angry mob or we believe in him. And I encourage you, don't let today pass without knowing what side you're on. Whether you accept him or reject him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, your Son came to preach good news to us. You came to deliver us from our sin. I pray, Father, that you would cause all those who hear my voice this morning to take true stock of their soul, to know whether they are indeed trusting in Jesus, believing that He is the Son of God, believing that He has the words of eternal life. Father, would you please break through the bondage of unbelief. Please give sight to the blind that sinners might be saved. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.